Progress. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Torah Studies. Okay, so today we have a conversation about what it means to be a warrior. What it means to be, in, more precisely in this context, a spiritual warrior. Okay, so the, the term that we're going to focus on is how to become a warrior as inspired by the Torah, specifically the biblical story of our patriarch, Jacob. So tonight, Linda, how to become a warrior. You like that? All right. Good. Good, good, good. Okay, so let's... Let, huh? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we're going to begin by talking about the major part, the major discussion in this week's Torah portion, how it opens. It talks about the epic reunion of the brothers, the twin brothers. Who are the twin brothers? Yaakov and Esau, in English known as Jacob and Esau. So the way it's, so here, here's the breakdown. You may be familiar with this, but just in case you're not, or even if you are, I'm going to state this again, just to clarify. Jacob and Esau, they grow up, they're very different than each other. Jacob is a man of the tent, Esau is a man of the field, they don't see eye to eye, they have different sympathies of their parents. Jacob loves Esau. Rebe Sorry, that's the brother. Isaac, Yitzchak, the father, loves Esau. Rebecca, the mother, loves Jacob, the Torah says. It's a complicated dynamic. Uh, no thanks. No thanks. Thanks for offering. Um, <laughs> and the, the drama, the sibling rivalry comes to a head in the story of the blessings. What's the story of the blessings? So Isaac, before he passes away, he wished to bless his older son. We discussed this many, many times. Just going over the story, just for, uh, uh, for context. And he wishes to bless his older son Esau. He tells him to get him some food from the field. Next thing you know, Jacob swoops in with food that his mother prepared, takes the blessings, and splits. When Esau finds out about it, he's upset, understandably, and he wishes to kill his brother. Maybe not so understandably, he wants to kill him. Okay, so what does Jacob do? Jacob bounces. Jacob leaves town, and he's gone for about 34 years. 14 years he studied in yeshiva. It's not clearly written in the Torah, but the commentaries say that he studied in yeshiva for 14 years. And then, it's a lot, a lot of time in yeshiva. And then, he... Huh? Like a doctor. Yeah, it's like a doctorate, yeah. Jacob got a doctorate in... Uh, I think my yeshiva, one of my yeshivas used to give out a doctorate or whatever it is, a, a degree of Hebrew letters. I guess we know, I guess we all knew our alphabet. I'm kidding. Hey, Matt, good to see you. All right. Nice. We've got some, uh, some good crew with us. Excellent. Okay. So what's going on is that Jacob is studying for yeshiva 14 years in, in the yeshiva Shem Ever. He then goes to Lavan, where he gets married multiple times, has multiple children. And then finally, after 34 years, it's time to go home. Well, as he's headed home, he sends messengers. He sends angels, the Torah tells us. And this is the opening of this week's Torah portion. Vayishlach, Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim. Jacob sent angels, messengers, angels. He sends to check on his brother, take the temperature of his brother, so to speak. What is going on? Does his brother still, still hate him? Does he still want to kill him? Right? What the, what, what's the deal? And uh, let's see what happens next. So what I'm going to do is, 
I'm going to direct everybody here. Please open up your booklets to page 101. This is Vayishach 101. And then we are going to also share the PDF. All right, give me a second as I get this ready to go on, on the PDF side. Hold on. Do, 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 do. Okay. I'm going to read this. Okay, this is the opening of this week's Torah portion, text 1a, Bereshit, Genesis 32, 4 through 6. Vayishlach is the opening word in Hebrew, and that's the name of the Torah portion. So Jacob, again, to ascertain if his brother 34 years later is still burning mad or if he's cool, Jacob sent angels ahead of him to his brother Esau to the land of Seir, the field of Edom. So Jacob is sending messengers, angels to check out his brother. And he commanded them. Jacob tells the angel messengers, saying, So shall you say to my master, to Esau, Thus said your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, and I have tarried until now, and I have acquired oxen and donkeys, flocks, manservants and maidservants, and I have sent to tell this to my master to find favor in your eyes. Okay, so this is the message that Jacob gives to the angels to deliver to his brother, saying essentially... Jacob has been hanging out with Laban. He's been delayed, making it sound like otherwise he would have been here so much earlier. Anyway, he's, a little, he's been a little bit delayed. It's been about 34 years. He's become pretty successful, and now he wants to find out if you are okay. He's, he's telling all this to you to find favor in your eyes. In other words, to see if you are okay with him. All right, what happens next? Is, and we don't have a text for this, so you just have to take my word for it. What happens next is, well, the angels come back to Jacob, and they tell him, it's not looking good. It's not looking good. Esau, your brother, is still pretty, pretty upset, still pretty incensed about what happened 34 years prior. And beyond that, he's got 400 men with him that are armed, and they're advancing towards you. Other than that, hope you're having a great day, right? I mean, that's like, what could possibly go wrong? Your brother's coming, 400 men, and they're armed. No big deal. Okay. So what does Jacob do? Famously, he prepares. Now, the Torah describes throughout the, in the, these opening verses, the subsequent verses of this Torah portion, describes exactly what Jacob did in response to the threat, to the Esau threat. In short, Rashi summarizes it very nicely, and this is text 1b. So please turn to page 102. I'll put it up on the screen as well. And let's see what Jacob's response comp was comprised of. Text 1b, Rashi. Jacob prepared himself. Now, again, we could read the verses and see it, but like Rashi just gives it to us. Simple. Jacob prepared himself for three things. For a gift, for war, and for prayer. For a gift, as the verse says, so the gift passed on before him. For prayer, as the verse states, God of my father Abraham. And for war, as the verse states, the remaining camp will escape. Let me explain, because Rashi is giving it to us very, very briefly. Rashi says that Jacob decides then and there, there's a threat, an existential threat against himself and his own family and his, and his family and his possessions. And that threat goes by the name of his twin brother, Esau, or Esau. So he's now concerned, and he needs to make a plan. What's his plan? Three-pronged plan. Forget, he, he, prepa he prepares in a way of diplomacy, war, and 
spiritual prep for prayer. So what does he do? A gift, he sends a gift. Actually, he sends multiple gifts to his brother. Animals and different waves of gifts. He really like bestows lots of, lots of stuff to his brother. So that's preparation number one. Number two, he prays. Yeah. Wait, remind me where Esau is, because Jacob... So Esau stayed in stayed. the land that would be known later as Israel. So he stayed there. Jacob bounces out to Mesopotamia, back to the old country, right? And now he's come, Jacob's coming back, and now there's going to be a clash very soon. So, so what's the preparation? Three things. Number one, a gift. He gave him lots of gifts, as the Torah continues to enumerate. Prayer, Rashi quotes the opening of the verse about prayer, that Jacob prayed to God and said, God, oh my father Abraham, please help me, please save me, etc. And for a war... Jacob divided his camp into two, and he said, look, if, if Esau and his men attack one camp, their other camp will be able to defend itself or flee, whatever it is. He, basically, he was preparing for all eventualities. So he gave a gift, he prayed to God, and he prepared for war. Make sense? Yes? So far, so good? I have three questions. You think Jacob came with, with three preparations? I have three questions. Things come in threes tonight. Okay? You ready? Question number one. Question number one is why suddenly, uh, actually, let me... Rephrase. Yeah, but I didn't even start phrasing. So, like, <laughs> let, me re, let me rethink the way I want to say this, okay? I'm like, okay. So, number one, why does Jacob need, three, need to do three different things, right? And why specifically three? He has the prayer, he has the gift, he has preparation for war. I mean, it makes sense. He was preparing for all angles, but like why three specifically and why these three? Okay, that's question number one. Question number two, why is he preparing to fight? Why not just escape? I mean, he escaped 34 years ago. He ran away then, yeah? So why is he now preparing? Why is he so sure? Or, or why is he preparing for battle? Why not just, look, if you hear that, that, you're, that if, if he hears that Esau is coming with him, Adam with 400 men, maybe just, you know, <laughs> saunter off to the side. I don't know. It's like change course, go somewhere else. Do the old detour. I don't know. Just figure something else out. Why, why does he prepare for war in this confrontation? Yeah. So I have a feeling what it is is that this wasn't Jacob's idea. Good, you're saying he was directed. Yeah. He was told by God, go home, and now he has to face the music. Okay, good. Marnin is saying it wasn't necessarily his idea. Up to his own devices, he may have done the old end around, but, you know, based on what God tells him, so now he's, he's headed home. Okay, good. That's a valid answer. But none, no, no, no. But, but I, I, I'll tell you this. The answer is going to be better than the question. In other words, once we get to, the, to a perspective, you'll see how the perspective answers this question, even though you could answer it other ways, as, as you said. But nonetheless, let's ask the question. So question number one, why three preparations and why these three, three, these three specifically? Question number two, 34 years ago, he avoided confrontation with Esau, with Esau, his brother, and now he's ready to take it head on. Why is he so, so ready to take on this battle head on? Why not avoid it again? Okay? All right. Again, not the strongest question, but a question. Question number three. Question number, oh, see, I have four questions now. I had made the whole big deal about having three questions. And see that? Done. I split, I split the first question into two. Now what? Now I have four questions. All right. It's like, it's like Passover now. Uh, break out the mouth. Okay. What is, what is 
what is significant of three in Judaism? Or that's an oh, good. 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 Linda's asking about what is the what is the deeper significance of three. We're going to get to that tonight. Good. Good. Next question. Okay, this is only going to work in the Hebrew, but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to put up. So everyone, please look at page 102 at Rashi. I'm going to put it back up on the screen, and let's analyze the Hebrew text. And it's helpful if you know Hebrew for this, but, you know, either way. The first word, huh? Hitkin. Hitkin. What is the word hitkin? What does tikkun mean? To repair. To repair or to, what's another word? Fix. Okay? Hitkin atzmo means he fixed himself. For three things. L'shlosha, for three things. Now, what? Oh, one second, one second. So here it's translated as he prepared himself. He prepared, huh? What did you say? Right. So here, here's the thing. Jacob, so the translation, look at the English. Jacob prepared himself for three things. But the literal Hebrew is not prepared. It's fixed. And I know we're in the South. I know we're in the South. So people use fixed, right? Um... I'm fixing to go to the store, right? What does that mean? That, who? No? Does anyone say it? Marnie, help me out here. No, but I mean like this, right? Isn't fixing like preparing for? Yeah. I'm fixing chicken. I'm fixing myself up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so good. So look, especially here in the South, we use fixing. I'm fixing to go to the store. I'm fixing. What does that mean? I'm, I'm getting ready, or I'm looking forward, right? So, okay. So his skin, his skin, or hitkin, I'm going to say his skin. Just, that's the Ashkenazi in me coming out. His skin, right? Like, sikun olam. No, tikkun olam. Hitkin, all right, we're back to the T. Right, back to Shvari. Hitkin, atzmo, means he fixed himself. So why, why does Rashi use, okay, was Rashi from the south? I mean, what's south of France? He was from, by the way, Rashi was from France. Um, you know that Rashi was French? Of course. Yeah. Where? I thought it was Troyes. <laughs> Troyes. <laughs> Toi? Toi? Does that mean three? Yeah. Ooh. No. A different spelling. Okay. It sounds like it. All right. It's a homonym. Fine. So here's the deal. Why does Rashi use the weird phrase, he fixed himself? Why not he prepared? There's a, there's a Hebrew word for preparation. Yeah? What's the Hebrew word for preparation? Hechin. Hachana. Hechin. He should say hechin atzmo. He prepared himself. Why his skin atzmo? Why he skin atzmo? Why he fixed himself? Again, the English, the English makes it all better. The English just calls it prepared. But the Hebrew, it's a little bit of a different meaning. Hitkin means tikkun. It means he fixed himself. Almost like a repair. He repaired himself. So what's the repair? What are we, so obviously we're talking about a deeper idea here. It's not just he did three things. It's he repaired himself. What's the repair? The repair from taking the breath away. From taking the, the blessings. Okay, perhaps. Let's see. And he fled, the and he fled before and now he's fixing. Okay, good. We're going to go in a bit of a different direction, but I like, I like the angle. Making amends. Making amends, good. So in other words, what we're seeing here from the Hebrew is it's not simply that Jacob prepared himself for this epic, you know, rumble in jungle, I don't know, whatever, this epic rumble, wasn't that, no, that was wasn't that a fight? George Foreman and... Was that Muhammad Ali? Ali. Yeah, the rumble in the jungle? Yep. Yeah, yeah. alright. It's back in the day. 
back in the day. You're a boxing fan. That's how you know this. Well, you, well, then you should be. All right. No, not a boxing fan. So here's the deal. So, so preparing for this rumble, he did three things, but Rashi really says in the Hebrew, he, he corrected himself with these three things. So what does that mean? What's the deeper significance? And finally, question number four is, why does Rashi need this preamble at all? If you look at text 1b, look inside. Why does that say that Jacob prepared himself for three things, for a gift, for a war, and for prayer? Just say, Jacob, pray, Jacob gave a gift, he prayed, and he prepared for battle. Why, does this, why the preamble, he prepared himself for three? You understand my question? Why does he have to state a list before stating it? That one is in the first choice, but he was preparing. I, I hear you, I hear you, but why not just say, Jacob prepared a gift, he prayed, and he prepared for war. Why, 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 the, why that first little, those first, first several words, Jacob prepared himself for three things. What, we can't count on our own? Yes, like say, by the way, these are going to be three. Number one, it seems redundant, especially when you understand Rashi, or when, you, when, you, when you're familiar with Rashi's way of commenting, he explains things very concisely, very briefly. He only gives you the information without any of the the verbal accoutrements, typically, here he is being a little bit more verbose. Verbose? Yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, being a little bit more wordy. The question is, that's a trigger, like, hold on, hold on, what's he, what's he trying to teach us by these extra, with these extra words? So let me recap the four questions. Number one, why is this night different from all other? No, I'm kidding. Four <laughs> questions. Oh, come on, guys. All right, the four questions. These four questions are, number one, why does he engage in three preparations? Number two, why does he, why is he ready for conflict now when he wasn't ready 34 years ago? Number three is why does Rashi use a word that means fix or correct as opposed to one that more classically means prepare, if he's talking about preparations? And number four, why does Rashi need to, why does Rashi need to tell us that there were three preparations? Just tell us what they are and we'll do the counting. You with me on this? Yeah. Yes. It's like a briefcase with cash. There's 10,000 in here. Let me count it out for you. Rashi doesn't need to do that. We can count on our own. We're cool. You with me on this? Mm -hmm. Yes? Mm -hmm. Why am I talking about $10,000 cash in a briefcase? That's for another time. Okay. <laughs> Why 10,000? <laughs> I'm asking the questions. No, I'm kidding. All right. Let's... <laughs> Just joking. All right. So everybody with me? I'm looking. I'm checking in with, with our online crew. Yes? Yes? Four questions. Excellent. All right. To understand all this... We need to do a spiritual reading of Jacob. You with me? You know, like palm reading and like um, tarot card reading and astrological chart reading? We're going to do a Kabbalah reading, yeah, of Jacob. We're putting Jacob on the couch. We've got some couches over here. And we're going to do a reading. We'll do a spiritual reading of Jacob. By the way, speaking of spirituality, so I have to mention, I have to mention, I'm obligated by law to mention that in January... <laughs> We are going to have two incredible events. Before January, there are other incredible events, which we'll talk about at the end of the class. But in January, we're having Australian mystic Rabbi Label Wolf, who is a fan favorite. We all love Rabbi Label Wolf. Yeah, he's the coolest. He will be joining us live. Now, Australia, as you know, has been in heavy lockdown for a long time. They just got out, and he's not, he's not traveling yet. There's whatever. But he'll be joining us live, live from Melbourne. It's going to be Wednesday morning by him, Tuesday night by us. And I was going to say Saturday night, but that's a different, different, uh, different announcement. Anyway, so 
uh, he's going to be leading a, a Kabbalah and meditation workshop in January. We also are starting a six-week course on Jewish, on Jewish meditation called Meditation from Sinai. So everyone's invited to join that. Back to our story. It's a JLI class. Yeah, you sound a little bit too surprised for not getting it. we've done gamacho. We can do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. You weren't, clearly you weren't in the class. Nomi Freeman? She's also, yeah, we also have her doing a course in January. Oh, it's going to be packed. Oh, just wait till 2022. That's going to be the year. The, she did, yeah. That's his, that's her mother. Her mother. Yeah, her mother, yeah. All right, so here we go. So let's do a reading. Let's, yeah, let's do a reading of Jacob. Let's figure out who, who Jacob was. So to understand this, we have to preface a classic Kabbalistic idea, which some of you have heard me say, I don't know, probably hundreds of times. I'm looking around the room right here. Some of you have heard me say this hundreds of times. Every soul has 10 powers, right? Yes, hundreds of times. Yes, you've heard, you've seen the chart. You guys have seen this Kabbalah chart many times. Huh? The, the Sphero chart. Okay. Every soul is comprised of 10 soul powers, three intellectual, seven emotional. The intellectual powers are Chachma, Bina, and Dat, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, aka Chabad. And the seven emotional powers are Chesed, Gevura, Teferet, Netzach, Yesod, and Malchut, which roughly translate to kindness, discipline, compassion, ambition, humility, connection, connectivity, or, yeah, connectivity, and leadership. These are the seven emotional dispositions that we have. So everyone, every single one of us has three intellectual abilities, creative intelligence, analytical intelligence, Etc. And we have seven emotional abilities. At the same time, at the same time, everybody's a little bit different. Everybody's a little bit different. In other words, the the um, the manner in which our emotional disposition is tweaked is a little bit different. It's kind of like computer monitors. Yeah, you ever work on one computer screen and then go to another computer screen and you look at the same image and it looks completely different? You're wondering, like, what's going on? Well, because one monitor is set to, like, bump up the reds and the oranges, like a warmer glow. Another one is set to be a little bit cooler. And next thing you know, it looks completely different. Uh, in a similar vein, you're listening to music on different devices, right? So sometimes the music can sound very, like, deep, boom, boom, very deep and bassy. And sometimes it sounds, like, high and, uh, and all trebly. Just, it's, it could be tweaked in different ways. The, the big idea here is, the big idea is that every one of us has these 10 powers, but the way the 10 powers are, are um, lie within the person could be completely different based on how they're tweaked. So somebody could have a lot of chesed, not a lot of gvura, vice versa, and then they exhibit totally different personalities, even though at the core, they're made of the same core 10 elements and building blocks of personality, but depending on how they're tweaked, it can be a completely different experience. So the reason why I'm saying this is, to take a look, to, to, to analyze, before we get to Jacob, to analyze two of the most famous sages of the Mishnah, Hillel and Shammai. Now it's known that Hillel and Shammai, Hillel and Shammai, Shammai, yeah. 
So Hillel and Shammai. So these, these were individuals that lived right about 2,000 years ago. And Hillel and Shammai were famous uh, Talmudic Academy sparring partners. Not sparring in a negative way, but they, they had difference of opinion about the law in many cases. There are hundreds of examples of differences of opinion between Shammai and Hillel or their respective academies. Now, one thing that recurs in, in pretty much all of these debates between Hillel and Shammai is that Hillel is, by and large, lenient. He takes a more lenient approach, and Shammai takes a more stringent approach. Okay? So Hillel is more lenient, and Shammai is more stringent. Now, it would be easy to say, well, Hillel was a nice guy, and Shammai was... Not, not such a nice guy, right? He was a pain, right? Hill, Hill was a really nice guy. He was sweet. Oh, he was like so kind and gentle. And, and Shammai was mean and strict and said no a lot of times. So if a question comes up in law like yes or no, is it okay or not okay? So Hill will say, yeah, it's fine. And Shammai says no because that's her personality. And the truth is, when you look at some Talmudic stories, you might think that indeed that's corroborated with these narratives. So I'm going to share my screen. Let's look inside. Um, if you have the book or booklets, it's on page, what is it, 103, 104? What page are we on? 103. 103, okay. 103, yes, 103 indeed. I'm going to read this to you. This is talking about a, uh, um, individuals who wished to convert to Judaism, who came before Shammai and Hill respectively, and how they responded to the question of conversion. Here we go. The sage is taught. This is straight up from the Talmud. A certain Gentile once came before Shammai and said, how many Torahs do you have? He doesn't mean how many scrolls in the ark. He means like how many areas of Torah. So uh, Shammai said to him, to this fellow, two. There's the written Torah and the oral Torah. The Gentiles said to him, with regard to the written Torah, I believe you. Okay, that's black and white. But with regard to the oral Torah, I do not believe you. In other words, the rabbis made it up. Come on, I don't believe in that. Convert me on condition that you will teach me only the written Torah. What does Shammai say? Shammai scolded him and cast him out with rebuke. Get out of here. What is this? You don't want to accept the written Torah. The, sorry, the oral Torah. Be gone. The man then came before Hillel and said the same thing. And what did Hillel do? He converted him. Yeah? No problem. You went in, done. Listen to this. On the first day, he taught him Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit. Right? He pulls up a chart. Yeah, and he says, this is an Aleph, this is a Bet, this is a Gimel, this is a Dalit. The next day, he reversed the order and told him that Aleph is tough. In other words, he said, this is tough, and this is Shin, and this is Reish, and this is Kuf. In other words, he reversed the letters. Not the order of the chart, but the, the, wh which letter corresponds to which sound and which word. The man said, but that's not what you told me yesterday. You're confusing me, Rabbi. Hill said to him, didn't you rely on me? You should also rely on me with regard to the oral Torah. In other words, how do you know that an aleph is an aleph and a bet is a bet? Because I told you so. In other words, you're relying on tradition. That's extrinsic to the letter itself. So rely on, on, on a meaning of the written Torah that's extrinsic to the Torah itself. Does that make any sense, what I'm saying? Yeah? Are we getting a little too philosophical? Too, too, uh? Yeah? Yeah, it's like he... Hillel didn't say what an Aleph is. That was something that was passed down. So Correct. So if you believe me that I'm saying it's an Aleph, then why would you not believe the oral Torah? Right. In other words, if you're believing me that this shape is an Aleph, how do you know? The, the shape itself doesn't prove it. You have to have an oral tradition that says that's an Aleph. Mm -hmm. 
So if you believe me, if you believe that, in my, that I'm authentically passing you down the meaning of, of what this letter is, then believe me when I tell you that the meaning of the word tefillin in Torah is the black boxes with the straps, even though it doesn't say that clearly in the Torah. Does that make sense? In other words, you can't even read the written Torah without an oral Torah. I hope that makes sense. Yeah? You can't read. The, you can't even read, let alone understand. You can't read the written Torah, Hebrew, without an oral tradition as to what the letters actually are and how to pronounce them. So if you believe that oral tradition, why not the oral tradition and the whole meaning of the, of the, of the, of the verses themselves? Okay, either way... I, I understood everything until you said extrinsic, and then... Um, yeah, well, I'm trying to listen. You know, once we, we, we get fancy in these classes, we, get, we, get, we use fancy language, and then that's it. All right, so but the point, really the point here is that Shammai was tough. The, the guy, the fellow said, oh, I don't believe in the oral Torah. I just have written, so Shammai just chased him away. Hillel worked with the guy. Hillel explained to him why you have to acknowledge. There, there always needs to be a, an, or, an oral tradition with anything, including the actual Hebrew language itself. Yeah. Say it again. A written. A Torah before the written. Right, right. You have to have a key beforehand to even understand. Exactly. You don't have a Torah. What are you going to write? Exactly. Next, next story, 104. Another time, a certain Gentile came before Shammai and said, again to Shammai, convert me on the condition that you teach me the entire Torah while, standing, while I'm standing on one foot. That's the famous, this is a famous story. Shammai dismissed him with the, measuring, with the measuring stick that was in his hand. He took like the ruler and said, get out of here. The man came to Hill before Hillel who converted him. Hillel said to the man, what is hateful to you, do not do to another. That is the entire Torah. The rest is its interpretation. Go and study. Okay, so this is, th these stories illustrate the personality difference between Hillel and Shammai. Shammai doesn't take, yeah, he does not, he's not taking any um, silliness. So you tell me, you only want to convert on condition that, you only, that you're only taught the written Torah, not the oral Torah, that you teach me Torah on one foot. Come on, what is this? Amateur hour, get out of here. Like, what are you, what is it? You're dictating the rules of Judaism, right? See you later. Sayonara, baby. Like, what is this? Shammai, that's Shammai. Hillel says, one second. Somebody's interested? All right, so they don't understand. Perfect, Let, let's explain it. Let's break it down, and we'll see. And indeed, it worked out. Now, so you would say simply that, yeah, obviously we see a personality. You, you, you have a clear distinction in personality. Hill, Shammai, Hillel was a nice guy. And Shammai was a meanie. Meanie? Anyone say that? I don't know. Right? Hill was nice and Hill was not as nice. Sorry. Yeah, Hill was nice and Shammai was not so nice. Shammai is chasing people away. He's shouting at them. He's chasing them with rulers. I mean, my gosh. Right? Huh? Get off my lawn. Old man waves fist at cloud. I mean, right? This, that's what's going on. Yeah. Yes. Hillel was confident in what he was teaching. <laughs> nice. And Hillel couldn't stray from, you know. You're saying Shammai couldn't. Shammai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so Marnin is saying, <coughs> we had another way to look at it is that Hillel was confident. You couldn't run. Hillel was like, Hillel could roll with the punches. He was like, bring it on. All right, all right. Let me, I'll, and Shammai was like, you know, stuck in his, in his box. Like you, you throw him something, you know, throw him outside there. He's like, nah, I, like, you know, I can't compute that. All right, that's one way to look at it. So either he's mean or he's in the box or whatever it is. 
But Kabbalah gives a whole new way of understanding it. Because, again, what I said before is relevant right now. Kabbalah says that everybody has the same ten soul powers. But every one, for every, every person has them tweaked and tuned. That's a good word. Tuned a little bit differently. It's like when you tune your guitar, you tune the piano, you tune the chauffeur. I'm kidding. You can't tune the chauffeur. <laughs> right? But, like, when you tune, that would be, that would be cool, right? Let me just, like, tune my, my, uh, my ram's horn. So here's the thing. Everyone has chesed, everyone has gvura, but some people have more chesed and less gvura, some people have more gvura, less chesed. Famously, Kabbalah says, and we'll, we'll bring the text from the Zohar, text three in a moment, classic work of Kabbalah. Hillel, you know, men are from Mars, women from Venus. Yeah, Hillel was from chesed. Shammai was from Gevura. That's the big idea. Hillel was from Chesed. What is Chesed? Chesed is generous, giving, accepting, loving, right? Honoring. That's what Chesed is. And Gevura is strict and rigid, right? In the box, right? Rigid, strict, disciplinarian. So this is manifested. It's not just this guy was nice, this guy wasn't so nice. It's deal, we're dealing with soul energies and soul powers that are tweaked, that are amped up or amped down. I don't know if that's the right phrase. That are either amped up or muted. Um, and, that, and, that, and that creates a very unique persona. So Hillel has a lot of chesed. And that's reflected in his, you know, to, he's totally patient with these people that others, like Shammai, were not patient with. Why is he patient? Because he's got chesed, he's got a lot of chesed, he's got a lot of patience, he's got a lot of love, he's got a lot of generosity to give. At the same time, that's also why he's lenient, typically in Jewish law, because, again, on a deeper level, leniency means, I see potential in this, you can use it, and you can extract the good inside of it, so it's kosher. I say it's kosher, which means there's potential here. And Shammai, on the other hand, is more gvura. He's more restrictive, he's more restrained, he's more disciplined, he's more... He's more closer to the chest. And that means he's not going to entertain the guy who doesn't say, I don't believe in the, the oratory. Or the guy says, I teach me Torah on one foot. He's like, that doesn't fit into the box. Like, that, that's not, that that's not, doesn't fit into the disciplinarian, to this Gavura persona. Get out of here. And then at the same reason, that's why he's more strict in Jewish law. His rulings are always more strict. Why? Because of the idea, Gavura is, always, Gavura looks at something and says, no, the first option is no. So can this be used? Is it, it's on the border. Can it be used? No. No. So Hill says yes. He's more generous in his perspective. And, 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 uh, and Shammai says no. And that's the Gvur. So before we get to questions, let me just read this so you see that this is well-founded in thousands of years of Jewish mystical thought. Let's read this text together. Text number three, page 104. Here's what it says. Zohar. This is like the original OG Kabbalah. Hillel and Shammai... Hill and Shammai stem from the side of mercy and from the side of judgment, and respectively. Hillel is from mercy, Shammai is from judgment, which are the attributes of chesed and gvura. Boom! Right? You think we're making this up now? This is from the Zohar. This is like 2,000 years old. Chesed and gvura. Hill and Shammai is chesed and gvura. And embodied also by Abram and Isaac. Abram was chesed and Isaac was gvura. Those like him gathered around him, and these are the students of Beit Hill. Likewise, the students of Beit Shammai. In other words, the people that gravitated to Hillel for, as his students were individuals that were likewise chesed-oriented. And guess who gathered around Shammai? People who were gvur-oriented. That's the way it works. You attract people, by and large, that are like you. So who were Hillel's students? Beit 
Hillel, the Academy of Hillel. Who were they? Chesed people. And who was Beit Shammai? Kvura people. That's why not just Hillel and Shammai took the sides of leniency and stringency, respectively, but their academies followed suit because they attracted students that were like them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes? Okay. Good. Rabbi. Yes, Ray. Um, I, also, I don't know if you mentioned it already, but um, when it comes to um, uh, lighting candles, um, uh, Hanukkah. Well, uh, no, excuse me, with Shammai that said you light all of them and you take one away every night. This is for Hanukkah. Yes. And um, Hillel said, no, you light one each night and add to it. Yes. Yes, right. which is explained the same, the same concept, right? Hillel says, Hillel's chesed, Hillel says, let's just focus on the light. One, then two, then let's just focus on adding light. Shammai says, we got to knock out the darkness. We need eight blasts against the darkness. And then once we weaken the darkness, we only need seven the next night. And then once it's weakened, only need six, five, four, three, two, one, until we vanquish the enemy. It's focusing on on the gvura, on the, on the battle, as opposed to on the positive, on the light. This is the way it's explained in the Hasidic philosophy, how the, the, the dispute and the Hanukkah candles follows the same model of chesed versus gvura. But either way, and, and by the way, it's an interesting because a lot of, it's interesting because many, some of us are not familiar necessarily with, with Shami's opinion because no one, no one does it. No one lights the menorah, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. We always light one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight because we follow Hillel. The law is... Spoiler alert, the law is a kill. Right, well, but no, no one, it's not, it's not in practice at all. No, no one does 8-7. Um, anyway, so we follow Hillel. Hillel was all about chesed, and, uh, and that's it. And, and the Zohar also pointed out, interestingly enough, that this is also correlated to Avram and Yitzchak. Abraham, Avram, Abraham was chesed. He was all about inviting guests. He was all about generosity and giving. And Yitzchak, as we've said a few weeks ago, Yitzchak was all about gvura, all about a restraint, all about discipline. He dug wells. It's like an introspective type of, you know, bringing out the best from within, etc. However, and this is the big idea now. Here's the big plot twist. The Mishnah, the Mishnah says that there are certain cases in which Hillel took a stringent, a stricter approach and Shammai took the more lenient approach. This raises the question. You with me on this? This is the ultimate plot twist. We've just explained that Hillel's soul is chesed, and therefore he rules leniently. And Shammai's soul is gvura, and therefore he rules strictly. And you would think that would be consistent all the way through. But there are enough cases, the minority, minority of cases, but enough cases where the roles are reversed and the lines are crossed. Let me show you what I'm talking about. All right, let's take a look at text number four. Okay, jump in on this. Text 4, page 105. I have it up on the screen. The Mishnah says, the following, these following, are cases where Beit Shammai rules leniently. Did you say five? I meant text 4. Okay. Yeah, I may have said 5, but that's just to see who's listening. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, I, I misspoke. Text number 4. The following are cases where Beit Shammai, who's usually strict, rules leniently. And Beit Hillel, who's usually lenient, rules stringently. So again, these are cases where the lines are crossed. An egg, listen to this, and I'm going to explain all these cases. Uh, Beitza, an egg, which is laid on a yomtif, on a holiday. And you're thinking, so what's the big deal, right? All right, are you, the question is, are you allowed to eat it on the holiday? 
let's say it's Rosh Hashanah, right? First day of Rosh Hashanah. And your chicken, your rooster lays an egg. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry. My bad, my bad, my bad. The hen, thank you very much. I'm thinking about Kaparos. All right. The hen, the hen lays an egg. That's like the famous joke that the kids say, right? There's a rooster on a roof. Yeah, and at the, which, which direction? The egg is the northeast, south, or west. And the answer is roosters don't lay eggs. All right. It's one of those like misdirection uh, riddles. Okay, so, um, so let's say it's the first day of Rosh Hashanah, it's a holiday, right? First day of Rosh Hashanah. And you have a hen, not a rooster, maybe you also have a rooster, but you have a hen. And the hen lays an egg, okay? Are you allowed to eat the egg? Yeah? On, on Yom Tif, on Rosh Hashanah. What's the answer? Yay or nay? Huh? One second, not on Yom Kippur, right, but on, on Rosh Hashanah. So the question is, is it Muktzah? You know what Muktzah is? Muktzah is... Something that was not permitted or not in existence to use before the holiday comes in, if it comes into existence on the yomtif, on the holiday, you still can't use it because when the holiday came in, you couldn't have used it because it didn't exist. Does that make any sense? Yes? This is, called, this is what we call the oral... Huh? Shabbat is muktzah. Yeah, certain things you can't touch because they're, they're not of... They're, you can't move, we can't move certain things on Shabbat, right? Because they are things that are not supposed to be done on Shabbat or they didn't exist when Shabbat came in in a permissible way, therefore you can't use them or move them on Shabbat. So the same thing is true with the egg, right? So the baits of the egg, which is laid on Yom Tif, so the question is, can you eat it? Can you enjoy it? Or, or is, it, is, it off, is it off limits? So listen, so let, I'll explain the law. So Beit Shammai says, let's read it inside. Beit Shammai says, it may be eaten. You can eat the egg. Why? Because even though the egg didn't exist, the hen did exist when Yom Tov came in. Mm -hmm. And if you would have done a surgery on the hen, you could have taken out the egg. No, the egg was there. Even if it wasn't laid, if it wasn't... Yeah, are you with me on this? Yeah? yeah? Even though the egg didn't emerge until the holiday... But as the holiday came in, the egg was still there on some level. So therefore, he says, it's like the egg was there, and it's kosher. And not kosher. It's, you can eat it on, on the holiday. Beit Hillel says, no, you can't be eaten because it did, if it wasn't here when the holiday came in, you can't have new stuff. You can't, if it wasn't here when the holiday came in, at the moment the holiday began, and then it comes into existence somehow, some way, you can't have it. You can't enjoy it. You have to wait till after the holiday is over, and then you can eat it. That's so who's, who's more lenient in this case? Shammai. Shammai. Oh, here's the exception. Right? Shammai. And Hill's stricter. You can't eat it. Let's continue. Beit Shammai says, this is regarding the prohibition of eating chametz on Passover, 11 items on Passover. So Beit Shammai says that one is liable for eating chametz on Passover with a kazayit, that's like an olive-shaped size, of yeast or a kotevet, which is a date size, larger size of actual chametz, that's when you're liable for violating the prohibition of eating 11 items on Passover. Beit Hill says, nope. In both cases, the amount is the small kazayit is the size of an olive. So who makes it, who's stricter? Once again, Hillel. Hillel makes, makes you liable for eating even an ounce, even, no, 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 even a, a, an olive size, a, a small amount of, uh, of chametz Beit Shammai says, no, it could be a date size. That's only when the prohibition or the violation 
kicks in to be liable for punishment. So the bottom line is that in these cases, huh? But where does he say that? And says, Beshemah says, one is liable for eating chametz from Passover with a kazayat of yeast or a, or a kotevet of actual chametz. So if it's pure yeast, or if it's the leaven itself, it's a kazayat. But if it's chametz, which is an admixture of lev, of the yeast and something else. But it doesn't change the subject. It says it's liable with, you know, it's a continuing sentence. I, I, the, the, I would disagree with the brackets. In other words, the brackets says chametz, but it's, uh, then later on it's to clarify chametz. So I would say one is liable on Passover, taking out eating chametz on Passover, one is liable on Passover with a kazayat of yeast or a kotevet of actual chametz. But Beit, that's Beit Shammah. Beit, Beit Hill says in both cases the amount is a kazayat, which means the smaller amount already makes you liable. So Beit Hill is stricter. Beit Shammah is a little bit more lenient between the size of an olive and a date, that's the, uh, that's the distinction in the law. So the point, and, and then the Mishnah goes on to tell us more cases where Hilla, Beit Hilla, the Academy of Hilla is more, is more strict, and Beit Shammai, the Academy of Shammai, is more lenient. And the question becomes, and again, this is why, I'm, why we're raising this for a very specific, very focused question. And that is, if the soul of Hillel is Chesed, and if the soul of Shammai is Gvura, and if they attracted students that were like them, they attracted students that were like-sold, like-minded, like-sold. So Hillel attracts the Chesed people. Shammai attracts the Gvur people. How does it ever make sense that Beit Hillel, that the Academy of Hillel, should suddenly, become, should suddenly rule in a strict way, and Beit Shammai should rule in a linear way? It doesn't make any sense. How, where does it come from within? If this, guy's always, if this guy has Chesed predominantly, and this guy has Gvur, so where's it coming from? The answer to the question is probably obvious. But nonetheless, let's spell it out because the Alter Rebbe in Tanya, the Alter Rebbe explains this at length. And he says like this, yes, the dominant forces in Hillel, the dominant force in Hillel was Chesed and the dominant force in personality force in, in, in Shammai was Gvura. But even though those were dominant, the opposite trait existed. In other words, Chesed, in Hillel's Chesed was the dominant trait, but he still had Gvura. And vice versa. In Shammai, the do dominant trait was Gvura, but he also had Chesed. Which means that sometimes the non-dominant energy would also manifest itself. And that's what leads to those rulings. Let's jump into the text. And you'll see it for yourself in the words of the Alter Rebbe. Text number five. Here we go. Now every Jew must exhibit both of these traits, Chesed and Gvura. For there is nothing that has not its place, i.e. everything has utility at some point. Therefore, in other words, even if it's not your dominant trait, you still have to exercise it now and again. Therefore, we find a number of cases where Beit Shammai rules leniently and Beit Hill rules stringently to teach us the following. Yes, it is true that the souls of Beit Shammai were rooted in the spiritual left side, Gvura, which is why they always or most always rule stringently regarding the prohibitions of the Torah. Conversely, Beit Hillel, stemming from the spiritual right side of Chesed, would find reasons to be lenient and to permit. Nevertheless, in certain cases, Beit Shammai was lenient due to the hit, 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 hit kalalut. So this transliteration is throwing me off. Hit kalalut means the, the, um, the inter-inclusion 
in the root of the soul. In other words, the soul has all of the energies, even though as, it's, as it unfolds, one is more dominant than the other. But inside the soul, all of the powers are present. Their soul, Beit Shammai's soul, was comprised not only of Gvura, but also of a little bit of Chesed too, from the right side. Likewise, the root of the soul of Beit Hillel included an element of Gvura from the left side. They, in, there was inter-inclusion. Both, side, both personas had the opposite persona within them. So I hope this is clear. Somebody who's dominant, who's a Chesed dominant personality, still has Gvura. And someone who's a Gvura dominant personality still is Chesed. And that means, stated very simply, that means. And as the Alter Rebbe says, one must exercise both Chesed and Gvura. Which means, if you are a very kind and generous and forgiving person, sometimes you have to put your foot down. Maybe not always, but sometimes you have to draw a line. And at the same time, if you're a person that loves drawing lines and putting your foot down, sometimes you have to let things go. That's the way it is in life. Are you with me? If you're always putting your foot down, or you're always letting things go, at some point it's going to be unhealthy, and havoc is going to unfold. That's the way it is. Because sometimes the situation calls for you to call upon a non-dominant personality trait when necessary. Take a look at text number six, powerful statement in the Medrash. Listen to this. Text six, page 107. Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish said, anyone who acts mercifully when they ought to act cruelly will eventually act cruelly when they ought to act mercifully. You with me on that? In other words, if you're being, if you're letting things go when you need to put your foot down eventually... You're going to put your foot down when you should let things go because you got to know when to hold them. You got to know when to fold them. You got to know when to walk away. And you got to know when to run. That's the way it is. You got to know what to do in any given situation. And yes, Hillel is, is chesed, kindness, and leniency, and, and Shammai is gvura and stringency. Normally, but when, certain, when the situation calls for it, it's only healthy for Hillel to say no and for Shammai to say yes. The fact that there are cases where they reverse opinions, right, indicates that each one had the ability to call upon their non-dominant personality trait when they felt it was necessary. Does that make sense? We're, back, we're going to get to a major lesson in life. But first, but first, let me share with you, let me share with you, okay, no, good. So let's, let, let's answer the questions. Perfect. Let's wrap this up. We're going to answer, we're going to answer the questions and wrap this up. So the question that we began, now we're ready to go back to the story of Jacob. Who was Jacob? What was his personality? We know Abraham, Avram, was Chesed. And Yitzchak was Gvura. Isaac was Gvura. What, what about Jacob? Good, what about Jacob? Jacob, the Torah tells us, well, had the ability to integrate. And that's what the Torah is telling us. Jacob had the ability to integrate opposite forces within and to call upon even his non-dominant trait, perhaps, when 
the time was necessary. When push came to shove, let me explain. Remember the Rashi that says that, uh, that Jacob fixed himself? He corrected himself in three ways, to prepare in three ways. And we ask the question, why, why does it say he fixed himself? Why does it say that he corrected himself? Why does it say he prepared? Hechin atzmo. Why, why hitkin atzmo? Why he fixed? So the Rebbe explains that hitkin means tikkun, repair. Repair means that it's not just he prepared. He repaired, not prepared, repaired. Prepare is prepare. Repaired means that he looked within and called upon opposite traits, opposite energies to simultaneously approach one situation. Let's see this in the language of the Rebbe. This is beautiful, beautiful language. Text, uh, 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 no, text nine. Here we go. Text nine, page 109. The word, the Rebbe says, the word hitkin is from the word tikkun, fixing. It doesn't just mean preparing, but rather it also describes the method of preparation that one has to fix oneself, preparing internally to do something. The same applies to Yaakov, to Jacob. The way he prepared for a gift, for war, and for prayer was by fixing himself. In other words, it was a struggle. Why was it a struggle? Because here he was calling upon three completely opposite personality traits. Let me explain. What is a gift? Where does that come from? Chesed, generosity. A gift, giving a gift is an act of generosity. Preparing for war is an act of? Gevura. You guys with me on this? Yeah, that's an act of severity, toughness. So when you give a gift, you're being generous. When you're preparing for war, you're putting your foot down. And when you're praying, you're saying, I'm not in control at all. Right? I'm surrendering to God. I'm out of the picture. Do you understand how these three are completely opposites? These three modalities are completely, and they're calling upon different energies of the soul. Right? One is exercising your chesed. That means you're in a mode, mode of generosity. The other one is in your mode of severity. The other one is in a mode of, of, of surrender. So which one is it? Are you generous? Are you, are you, um, are you tough? Are you surrendering to God? Which one? Jacob did all three. And not just one, two, three, but three simultaneously. And that's why the Rebbe says, that's why Rashi says, according to the Rebbe's explanation, that he had to fix himself. He had to work on himself. He had to correct himself. He had to literally repair himself or, or, or work on himself to be able to channel all three paths at the same time. Why three? We never got that answer, did we? Because these respond to the first three primary emotional traits. Chesed, Gevura, and Teferet. What is Teferet? Teferet is um, uh, harmony or compassion, but in this case, it would be the surrender that I mentioned. So the right side, Chesed is, I'll give you a gift. I'll give you lavish gifts, my brother. Gevura is, I'm prepared for war. Totally different space, internal space. And Teferet is, I'm surrendering to God. Chesed, Gevura, Teferet. That's why he does three things. And that's why he has to fix himself. He has to call up. He has to summon some internal energy. Three internal energies to work simultaneously to attack Jacob. Understand this. Understand this. This is difficult. This is very difficult. It's easy. See, typically we have our go-to approach. Either we diffuse conflict with chesed or with gevura or with teferet. Some of us, you know, some of us go in, in, in moments of conflict and tension, we go to, you know, we, we make a joke. We try to diffuse it that way through like love and kindness. Some of us, 
fight back. And some of us, you know, almost give a uh, surrender and be like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, too, I'm too small for this, for this situation. Everyone has their go-to approach. Jacob, you would imagine, had his go-to approach naturally, and maybe that's what we understood uh, 34 years ago. He surrendered and he ran away because he wanted to avoid conflict altogether. He didn't give a gift. He didn't fight. He just, he just ran and said, you know, let me put it up to God. But now, 34 years later, he works on himself. Yeah? To, to pull on all three all three of these energies, because everyone has all of the energies, even if it's not your dominant one, you could choose to manifest it and to bring it out into the open and to utilize it when needed. Why three? And sorry, not, we know why three. But why all three simultaneously? Why, maybe if he just gave gifts, maybe that would be sufficient. He wanted to hit Esau, Esau, his brother, with, with a simultaneous three-pronged attack. He wanted to hit him with everything. And this gets, us, gets me to my final point which is a lesson from the great, um, uh, Fre sorry, Frederick the Great of Prussia. The Seven Years' War. The Seven Years' War was a war between Prussia and Austria in the mid-1700s. And the leader of the Prussians was a fellow named Frederick II, a.k.a. Frederick the Great, and Frederick the Great is known in history as developing a new type of warfare, a new strategy called the oblique order. What was that? So typically, the way it worked is there was an army. There was a main, a main army, and then they, a main you know, battalion, and there was flanked on the right and the left side by two other forces. And the two armies, the two sides of the conflict, would face off each other, parallel each other. So main, main, side, sides, and they would just head on battle. Well, this fellow... Frederick the Great developed a type of uh, strategy where all three of his battalions would attack one of the enemy's battalion. He would put all of his energy, right, all three, not three against three, but three against one, knock that one out, then go against the next one, and then go against the next one. Now, this could backfire, as you can imagine, because while you're attacking one, the other ones could, could do a, an end around, right, obviously. But nonetheless, it was successful for him. Okay? The historians deal with this, with this thing. But here's my point. The great Rabbi Avram the Malach, who was the son of the Magadim is rich, the son of the great Hasidic master of the Magadim is rich, derived a lesson in serving God from this, from this type of warfare, and this will blow your socks off. Text number 10. Sorry, text number 11. Okay, page 111. Among the Hasidic teachings spawned by observing the war in those days known as the Seven Years' War between Frederick, king of, of the Prussians, and the other kings, Okay, here we go. Typical warfare always consisted of a center brigade with flanks on either side against which the enemy would assemble a corresponding force. Each brigade would battle its opponent until one emerged victorious. The Prussian success, with God's aid, was achieved by, and it was, obviously God was behind it, but was achieved by concentrating all three brigades together and pitting them against just one enemy unit. In this way, they were guaranteed to conquer at least one enemy brigade. Although during the attack, enemy forces might attack, they nevertheless assumed this risk, which guaranteed victory over that one brigade. Then this would be repeated against the second and third brigades until they were eliminated entirely. And what's the message in divine service? What's the message in, in, in our spiritual service? Because trust me, that Rabbi Avram the Malach was not uh, discussing you know, the art of war. That was not his, you know, his, 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 his bread and butter. What he was trying to bring out is, similarly when it comes to serving God and fighting the good fight, sometimes like Jacob, 
We need to muster all three approaches simultaneously against one enemy. When Yaakov prepares to encounter Esau, yeah, he doesn't say, let me just give a gift, or let me just prepare for war, or let me just surrender and pray to God. Nope, he does all three at the same time, even though that was very difficult, even though it took a lot of strength to be in a space of generosity and in a space of severity and in a space of surrender simultaneously, he still did it. And thus, he put all three brigades, so to speak, against one enemy, against one foe. In this case, it was Esau, and thus he emerged victorious because he put all of his strength on all fronts, on all, all, all different angles, concentrated against this one target. All right, what's the lesson for us? That's a story about Jacob and Esau and his preparation for this encounter, and it all worked out well. But what's the message? What's the moral of the story? The moral of the story, at least the one that I want to present tonight, is that each one of us has our go-to personality. And when it comes to Torah and mitzvot, each one of us has mitzvot that we love doing and mitzvot that uh, it's not our cup of tea. So, for example, you might love studying Torah, but maybe prayer, uh, not, not your thing. Or maybe you love prayer, but charity, uh, not your thing. Or maybe you love giving charity, but... Um, um, uh, what's, an, what's, the op, what's kind of an opposite modality? But you love giving, but, you know, um, yeah, introspection, saying the Shema at night, bedtime, and thinking about your day, maybe that type of cheshben and that type of soul accounting, maybe that's not your thing. The message tonight is that even if it's not your thing, do it anyway. And when you need to, do it anyway, because we all have all of these abilities within us. We have the chesed, we have the gvura, we have the teferet, we ha- and we have the other, the other four and the other seven as well. In other words, just because this is your go-to, just because this is your strength, doesn't mean that that should be your exclusive focus. Don't make, don't only do what you like doing, do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Like Jacob, right? Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not an easy lesson, right? It's, 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 because we all gravitate toward our comfort zone. And the message is, hey, Cloudy, the message is, let's not only focus on what is in our comfort zone, let's also go beyond our comfort zone. Just like Jacob, who had to summon his strength, hit Ginatzmo, he had to work on himself to do a three-pronged attack, so too we should work on ourselves to have a variety of Jewish experiences those that fit our persona, and those that challenge us. So for this week, here's the homework. Find something that you love doing Jewishly and do it. Find something that you don't love so much Jewishly and do it anyway. You with me? Yeah, you with me? Make sense? All right, that's the homework. All right, uh, we're officially closing out. Questions and comments? Ben, jump in. Okay, so I, I love the lesson, okay? I love the idea. I love the idea of chesed, gvura, and tiferet all. However, you know how much I love Jacob. So um, anyway, <laughs> that's not what he does. And that's not what happens in the story. Because the angel then says, Ki sarita im Elohim ve'im anashim v'atuchal. He doesn't surrender. He goes for broke. And he, he beats God <laughs> at his own game in the end, okay? Because of his striving, because of that gevura in him, right? Um, he, 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 does, he does in the end, you know, 
Now I, I say I change it a little bit in my in my instance, having gained all this weight, it's Kisarita im Elohim Beim Anashim Batalchal. But um <laughs> couldn't resist that. But 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 the thing is that you know, and the the Rebbe's lesson is wonderful. I don't know that it it should apply to all of us, and I and I agree with that totally. But and I don't think it. I'm sorry. I I don't like Jacob. You all know it, um, and it doesn't apply to. Him. Okay, Here, so the good news is we don't have to talk about Jacob. If you don't like talking about Jacob, then we don't have to talk about Jacob. Free. Good. Perfect. Perfect. Good. So the message for us is the message for us is how do we develop. Our, our, how do we cultivate our, our strengths and at the same time work on, work on our weaknesses, work on those areas in which that could use a little bit more reinforcement? And that's what I'm suggesting Jewishly. Let's find, again, if you love a mitzvah, do it with even more enthusiasm this week. But if you find yourself struggling in a certain area or like, yeah, I'm not interested in that, push yourself, push yourself to try something new, to try a new mitzvah in a new area, a new genre, of Yiddishkeit that perhaps is not your go-to. That's the that's the me- that's the broad message for tonight. Okay, questions, comments. Yeah, Sandrine. Back to text six. Uh, isn't yeah. something in Tanya kind of similar that said, "Don't be nice to the cruel, or you will end up being cruel to the nice." Yeah, that text that says, "If you're if you're if you're." Um, uh, merciful when you're when we need that cruel. Is there something in Tanya like that? It might be. There might be. It's possible. I don't recall it. It's real old school. <laughs> it is old school, but it's so true, right? It's so true, right? Someone posted. Oh, someone posted from Tanya. From Tanya. It's very yeah. I don't recall exactly where, but it makes sense that this because this is talked about at length in Tanya, the idea of Chesed and Gvur and the interplay. You know, yeah, Marnie. Said that, you know, Jacob outsmarted God. No, God got him to do it. Right, right. At <laughs> the end of the day, Jacob had to do the work, right? At the end of the day, he had to do the work. And we have to, there's no substitute for the work. The bottom line is we got to do the work. And the work means that it, it's hard. We're not interested in doing it. It's not a personality. It's not a strength. We might say, yeah, let's let someone else do it. Look, I'll do the chesed stuff. I'll let you do the gvura stuff. I don't want to have that tough conversation. Let me let someone else have the time. No, sometimes it's healthy for us to extend ourselves beyond our comfort zones to have that tough conversation, right? It's, you know, when you're working with a team, right? So it's easy. Now, I'll do this role. You do that role. Sometimes it's healthy to be able to, to go outside of your box, right? And, and, and extra, find, find something new inside. Summon something new. And that's what we're suggesting. The idea of going outside of our... Typical comfort zones. Okay. Um, questions, comments from our Zoom crew. Okay. All right. Makes sense. All right. A few quick announcements, and then we'll close it out. A few quick, quick announcements are number one: Saturday night jewelry workshop and Hanukkah party right here or online. Join us. Don't miss it. Donna, our fearless jewelry designer, will be here. Fearless and creative. <laughs> Fearless, fierce, and creative. Chesed, Gvurat, Teferet, maybe, um, will be joining us live and online. So join us for that. Next announcement is Sunday. We're doing Mitzvah Day. 
Meals of Love. Join us to help cook and bake for women without homes. Rebecca's, in conjunction with Rebecca's Tent, a project of Sharath Israel, join us Sunday at 12.30 p.m. for cooking and baking and prepping food. It's going to be incredible. We have a great menu, and, and it's going to be a lot of fun, and a very, most importantly, a very, very important mitzvah. Um, you may have also received an invitation for Sunday night. We have a special in-person-only program Sunday night. Um, celebrating, get, getting ready for the 19th day of Kislev. If you have not received that information, let me know and I will get you that information. Um, it's going to include a light dinner and wine reception. Plus, you will receive a brand new edition of Hebrew-English edition of the Book of Tanya, custom IJA edition, as well as here Tanya Talks, short talks about the meaning of Tanya. It's a social, fun, and inspirational event. 60-minute program, Sunday beginning at 6 p.m. Join us. All right. Hi. Yes, Ray. Um, yeah, I just like, I never told you that um, there, um, Helen Spiegel and her, her husband, Frank Spiegel, started the shelter at Sheriff Israel, and I worked as a volunteer there wow. for over 30 years. Wow. The shelter. It was then called the Sheriff Israel Shelter for Homeless Women. Now it's called Rebecca's Tent. It is the most worthwhile. It just makes you feel so good wow. to do for other people. It's phenomenal. And it's a real mitzvah. Wow. Ray, I did not know that you were involved with, uh, with, with yes. the shelter for 30. Wow, it's amazing. Yes. Okay. Right. Thank you for sharing that. And it's a very special cause. So if you want to come and cook and, and, and prepare meals, join us 1230. If you can't make it but want to help be part of this effort, you can sponsor a meal, $18 to sponsor one of the meals. You can do it on our website, um, intownjewishacademy.org slash meals. You can find it, just go to intownjewishacademy.org and you can find it on the website and uh, be a part of it. Very special, very special day. All right, good. Okay, see you all. Have a wonderful, a wonderful evening, Laila Tov. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you.